There is no such thing as work-life balance. It's just life balance. And I think as human beings, we want to understand and relate to each other. And I speak much more openly than I ever would have about my life because I think if people see that I'm a parent, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, but I'm also someone that has a broader, rich narrative outside of what I do in work, they actually can relate to me more and I can relate to them. I open up that conversation more than I've ever thought was possible. I used to separate it and I don't anymore. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. You all moved around a lot in your life. We did. Whenever you come out to California, do you ever think like, maybe we should have lived here? You know, it's so beautiful. And we've lived in so many beautiful countries. We obviously grew up in Australia and Australian beaches and lifestyle is magnificent. So it was actually hard leaving Australia, but we've lived in Thailand. We've lived in Singapore. We now live in New York. This is a beautiful area. We love the open space. We love the lifestyle. I must admit the attraction of the beaches and things like that. I would love to get that surfboard back out. So it is attractive. At the same time, time zone and things like that makes a difference in my role. So I find the East Coast really beneficial. I get a lot of the European day. I get obviously the majority of the North American market. So logistically, it's a little easier, but that's the only reason. Otherwise, I'd love to be here. We'll get to this, but you're basically the CRO of SAP. You're in charge of everything customer facing. SAP is not a American company. It's not even a Bay Area company. It's a German company. Do you ever feel like not being close to HQ takes you away from the action? Like, Do you ever feel like, where's your boss, Christian? Officially, I report to the chairman. Can you explain that? The way the European governance structure works is you've got a supervisory board, board of directors, no different to American or other companies. But the executive board is actually appointed by the supervisory board. So it's appointed by the chairman. So our CEO, Christian, is our CEO. We all report directly to the chairman because we're accountable directly to the board of directors, the supervisory board, which is different to an American structure where you'll have a CEO and then all of the executive team reporting directly to that person. At IBM, before SAP, you had a normal structure, I imagine, right? Normal being American structure. That's right. What are the pros and cons? What's the difference? Why do they do it that way? They do it that way because you have a governance where you've got a broader visibility of an executive team. So there is this concept. The CEO obviously is this most senior accountable leader, but the executive team, and if you think of our company, I look after all of our, what we call customer success, 42,000 incredible women and men who serve our customers every day. That's a big function of a large organization. And so having the visibility and the engagement on a governance structure helps rather than only through the CEO. So that's one of the advantages. And the reality is in practical working experience, I report to Christian, we work in the dynamics of what you would get in a US-based structure. So I guess the day-to-day operation is very consistent, actually. It's more the governance that is a bit different. Meaning if there's decisions that require more buy-in 
than just you, does it become a little bit more complicated at times because there's more hands in the cookie jar? Meaning if everyone's on equal footing, it is in my vernacular, a partnership more than it is a hierarchical structure. Does sometimes that become a little bit more tricky? I actually don't know. Not really. The reason why it's not tricky is because you've still got accountabilities. And even in a US structure, your head of sales or your chief revenue officer has a remit. Your head of engineering will have a remit. Your other parts of your finance. So you still keep that structure. It's actually quite consistent. What I do find it is advantageous is teaming. Being clear about you're a part of a team to deliver an outcome, not just reporting the CEO, but you're directly accountable to each other. So it changes that dynamic, that peer relationship of an executive team, which I personally really enjoy. What happens if there is a decision that you and engineering need to make together, okay? And you have one perspective, the head of engineering has another perspective, where does the final decision fall? Yeah, it'll still go to SEO. It does. Okay, okay. It's still pretty traditional in that sense. It does. The other thing that I found fascinating about this structure, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you sign a term when you join. Is that right? Yeah. It's yeah. a three-year term upon joining the board? That's true. So you go from being a regular employee and an executive. I have been with SAP for over a dozen years. But when I join the board, you go onto a contract and it is a formal agreement. Again, it's governed by our annual shareholders and the annual general meeting. So a three-year contract. And then at the two and a half year mark, mid-next year, it's subject to renewal. And then you'll renew for another three years. Usually it's a three-year term. Sometimes it's extended a little bit more depending on the role, but usually a three-year term, which is unique. That's not a normal structure, but that is very consistent in Europe. It's like a tour of duty in the government. (laughs) Not a tour of duty. It's more, again, back to that governance. Why? I think there is an expectation that you're on a performance-based agreement. You've got certain objectives that you're delivering to for both employees and shareholders and for the market. And their expectation is you've got to fulfill that role. And so it gives a little bit of a governance opportunity to say, well, if you're not performing... We don't necessarily have to renew, but also as an individual, it gives me choice to say, hey, look, am I able to, am I giving the opportunity to achieve what I'm expected to, and I can negotiate that as a part of my structure and my contract with the supervisory board. It has benefits, but also it is, it's a European structure, certainly not a US one. Do the other members of the executive board, are they all on the same timeline as you. It's staggered. So it depends on, and obviously when each board position becomes up, whether someone resigns or retires, then that board, that starts. So it is very much staggered. And how does it work upon renewal time? Let's call it mutual renewal, right? You want to make sure that you're renewing and they want to make sure that they want to renew, right? Do you go in and it's a performance review? It's partly a performance review. There's no doubt. (laughs) Yeah, so I thrive on that. I must admit, I like the idea of always measuring, and I guess it's my ethos of how I run businesses, but the idea of being able to say, here's what we set out to achieve. Here's the charter that I had signed up for, the objectives. And that's not just an annual basis. The beauty is I do actually look at a multi-year basis. And then we have checkpoints. Hey, am I performing against those expectations? Is the organization achieving what we had set out to? And so when it does come to renewal point, it partly is a performance discussion, 
but it's also an opportunity to revisit, all right, are we still building? What's the next three years look like? What are we trying to achieve? So you tend to look a little bit longer term rather than just the immediate period. And that's the opportunity it brings as well. But both parties have got choice. It's super fascinating for me because I sign mental three-year contracts in my jobs, meaning every three years, I basically commit to a three-year deal with myself when I start a job because you can't really do anything in less time than 36 months. Like You really can't make meaningful impact. Usually the hard stuff doesn't really even begin until year two. And usually the gold is on the other side of the hard stuff, which takes at least a year to get through. And so in my opinion, I'm generally signing these contracts in my own head, but you're literally signing these contracts. I was fascinated. I love that. And because of exactly what you described, if you're a leader and you're trying to create impact and you want to be measurable outcomes and really move the needle for your organization, to think that you could do that in less than three years, that's incredibly difficult. By the time you identify what needs to be done, start the implementing those, and then seeing the results of that, you'd be interested to know in my career, actually, I never thought about the three years like you do, but nearly every one of the roles that I've done and every move that I've made has been at least three years because you then set a foundation and then I measure myself on what happens in year four. I've already taken something new, but is the business in a better place at what it was when I left it? And if it's not, I don't give myself the pass mark. Yeah, it gives me a little bit more clarity. It's almost giving myself a break because this way I tend to be an overachiever and I always want more. And sometimes I find myself getting very frustrated that I'm not moving at the pace that I would like. And having this three-year marker just gives me the space to operate in a kind of vacuum of the job. Does that make sense? Without distractions. And there's a lot of distractions around here in Silicon Valley. There is a lot of distractions. The other thing it does for you that I don't know whether you've identified it is it allows you to build on the skills and capabilities that you're trying to work on that makes you a better leader, a higher performer, having that greater impact. In a short period of time, you're putting undue pressure on yourself to achieve an outcome, whether it be business orientated or personal. On a three-year journey, you can say, okay, I'm going to work on my communication skills in external forums. I'm going to work on my negotiating skills. I'm going to work on my team leadership and building diversity. Whatever the things that you're working on as a leader, you've got to give yourself the time to build a strategy, implement it, test and improve, get better. Doing it in short periods is never conducive. You want to be able to build upon it on an ongoing way in a role that you've got consistency. Yeah. You know, one other thing that strikes me about your structure, the three-year structure, is in government, and again, I'm like, this is a very crude analogy, but in government, about halfway through your term, you start doing political things that maybe aren't in the best interest of anyone but you. Now, I have no idea, but I imagine that conflict of interest can exist in a structure like this. It's a great question. I've never considered it in that way. I guess my DNA doesn't, I'm like you, I think, what am I committing to? And I put all of my energy, all of my heart and soul and capability into that. So I don't consider it that way. And I think the difference in business versus government is the continuum of what you're trying to build. It's not about a change of government or right. change of policy. Where all of a sudden direction is completely opposite. Correct. Yep. Whereas what you're, it's more about 
strategy alignment and moving at a few degrees and then execution and results and have we seen enough performance to justify to continue in that direction versus slight changes? So that would be the difference. I think that's totally fair. I'm not sure how else to ask this, but your Q3 revenue was $7.8 billion, I think. So let's annualize that. Okay, let's just say going into next year, you continue the growth rates that you're on. You're going to be at like almost $50 billion of revenue. Right. $50 billion. <laughs> That's your number. Every week, you're delivering a billion dollars of revenue. Every week. You take that even one step further, which is every day, every workday, you're on the hook for almost $200 million. I think that's the math. Is that daunting or can you not even give that space because it's just too big of a responsibility to think about all the time? One of my uh, sayings, and I have many, but and it's not invented by me, but controlling the controllables. And so a lot of my emphasis is that I'm very well aware of the responsibility of that and the implication that has, that implication to our shareholders, the implication to our employees, and more importantly, the families of the employees, the communities of the employees who need to have confidence that that revenue is going to be delivered, let alone our customers who are expecting a level of quality outcome service to help run their business. So I'm super aware of the responsibility of that, but I don't get hung up in the magnitude because what I can control is who I directly engage with. So whilst it's a large organization, my sphere of influence is like most people where you've got maybe 50 or 100 people and my direct team of 15 is, that's who I interact with. And so what I look to do is to set a tone, set an example, be able to set a direction, be an active listener to understand so that 200 million that happens every day is well managed because we're empowering the organization to achieve it. I won't personally touch on the majority of that, but I'll have an influence through the way that I lead. And I think for me, as long as I know that's a positive impact, I can accept that some days are better than others, but that's life in business. Yeah, I think that's fair. There is, you said 42,000 people in your org out of what, call it 100,000 at SAP. This is one of my favorite questions to ask folks that are at larger organizations. I asked Thomas Curian, who I think probably has around forty to 50,000 people in his org at Google Cloud, the same thing. Do you get nervous when your organization is 42,000 people deep, yet your sphere of influence is about 15 people, that you don't have the appropriate feedback loops? Meaning there's a lot going on between your team and the rest of the org. There's only so much you can know. And Part of the problem that I've seen in small or large organizations, but when you're in positions of very meaningful power, is that people kind of pander to you. It's in their best interest, generally speaking, to say the things that you want to hear, which is absolutely not in the best interest of the organization and certainly not the best thing for Scott Russell to continue to improve and drive outcomes. Do you ever think about that? I do a lot, actually. It's a great question, Devin, because... The thing that you can get caught up in very quickly is people's, their willingness, and they actually, they don't, they're not ill-intended when they say, ah, oh, that was a great presentation, or that was a great idea. Their intent is well-meaning for the most part. It's being grounded. So there's a few things that I really focus on. One is having multiple ways of engaging beyond that direct reporting strat to be able to understand, get a feel and a vibe of the market. So I spend a lot of time with clients. 
I speak to customers, two or three customers every single day, usually executives. But what I get is an opportunity to engage the team that are serving those customers, that are working with those customers. And that gives me insights. And I ask open questions, you know, the alignment, how's this product, does it really achieve the strategy of the customer? So I'm able to get insights in a really natural way. All hands forums, customer coffee corners, different ways, even the office coffee chat, the opportunity to gain insights, which means you need to be actively listening. The second is I pride myself on having good EQ. And what I mean by that is not just the emotional quotient of being aware of your surroundings, but never placing myself at higher than anyone else. I always talk to people about we've got different roles. That doesn't make them better or worse. They're just different. My role is to be able to lead. The only way I can lead that 42,000 people is if I actually understand what it is they do, the challenges that they face, the opportunities that they want to gain. And that's on me to learn and understand that. We can't assume that that rolls up. So I think if you're a leader of a large organization, spend the time and engage and you'll get the insights, you'll get the feedback. People are very open, and especially if you're willing to listen. It actually can be quite powerful. But then you use formal methods. We use our Qualtrics experience platform. We do regular feedback. Yes, yeah, skip levels, that kind of thing. Levels, yep. Of course. Do you think you're particularly vulnerable to it? I ask because sometimes I think I'm particularly vulnerable to it, mainly because you've been described as the chief optimist officer. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as glass half full with Scott Russell. It's glass overflowing. And, uh, <laughs> and so I feel like I'm similar in that way. I generally find the good in things. It's easy to get taken advantage of in that way. Don't you think? Does that ever? It does. Can you let that insecurity creep in? I don't let the insecurity creep in, but I am really aware of the unintended consequence of it. So like you and I can see it, you've got the energy and you're passionate and people get caught into it. There's a couple of unintended consequences. One is that people will follow to a direction without maybe necessarily thinking. The other thing that I find, and I'm really conscious of this, is I'm sitting in a, with a team and you've got a sales call, or you're meeting a key customer. You can unintentionally overpower the room by that energy and the positivity. And so you'll get some passive behavior sometimes from your team. And you're like, oh, am I giving them the space to bring their best out? So nearly pausing, and I don't like to hold myself back, but it's more being aware of the consequence that is positive. And yes, there is no doubt that optimism is an essential part of success in my view, because it generates belief. But when optimism goes overboard, and then you lose sight of the reality of the situation, you can easily get off track. And I've had my fair share of experiences of doing that. Do you have any points that come to mind where your optimism was most fragile, personal or professional? Anybody who says that they haven't had a bad quarter or a tough period of time, honestly, that is actually a red flag for me because you haven't then put yourself into situations that challenge that test your boundaries. And I have a saying, my kids would cringe when I say this, but being comfortable being uncomfortable. So when you do that, you put yourself into risky situations. I can remember a really tough quarter. I took over the regional president for Asia Pacific in Japan. And I, um, my first quarter in, I was full of potential, full of optimism. I was ahead of my skis. I was going way too fast down that slope and didn't deliver. And it really impacted my belief system that 
had largely driven success up until that point and was like, am I not ready for this? Have I put myself into a role that I'm going to let people down? And my judgment, was it correct on a couple of major deals? I woke up the next morning. I focus on being a good human being and it's not the only thing, you know, our work. I focus on life balance. So I then look at the other surrounding aspects try to keep myself balanced. And then resiliency is one of the most important characteristics of great people because they'll bounce back. And I guess I pride myself in bouncing back, but you definitely test your faith in yourself sometimes. You take on this big president role in Asia Pacific. The first quarter you missed? First quarter in. So it was Q3 2017. I'll never forget it. When did you know you were going to miss? Uh, there was a major deal two days before the end of the quarter. You know yeah. the cloud and software engine, a lot of business gets done in the last week. And it was a major customer and a client that I knew. He's uh, one of the most powerful people in Indonesia, an incredible leader. I have known him for a dozen years and we had a great relationship. And I had high confidence and there was a few things that happened that the business didn't end up concluding and and it had a major impact on our regional actually and our global performance. So it was not insignificant. Waking up that morning and facing that call, facing the feedback around the impact that it had on the company. You get character out of that. Don't avoid those moments. Embrace them. Can you walk me through that day? I don't mean to give you PTSD, but you wake up, you get a call a day or two before the year or the quarter is over, I guess, and you're not getting the deal. Mm. Then what? What is the sequence of events that you have to go through? Yeah. So it was actually a personal phone call because I called the chairman and he expressed that the deal wasn't going to happen. How so big was the deal-ish? 35, 40 million. Yeah. And it was meaningful. Meaningful. Yeah. And the first is reaction is just shock, disappointment, frustration, I actually remember it because it was only a couple of hours before I then had to report to our board, you know, our CEO and the executive team at the time and share that. And I had already given a heads up to them beforehand. That was difficult, but the call in front of my peers, in front of the other leaders where you're in a forum where you're being judged about the performance of your business and the stability of your business. And so then it was embarrassment. And you're already insecure that this job is a little bit too big for you. It was the first time in and my attitude was full of energy and then you have that results. I'll never forget I finished that call and it was tough. It was and it wasn't made easy. The leadership were not happy, of course, and I've seen those moments and actually delivered those moments so I understood what was to come. But going through it was tough. Meaning they kind of undressed you. Oh yeah. What I did was I got up, I went and I went for a walk. Probably went for an hour walk. I remember my wife and my son were at home at the time because it was an evening in, in Asia time in Singapore. And I came back and I was just full of resolve. No. This is not going to define me. Within an hour. Within an hour. But it took that space of me just breathing. My father used to say to me when I was young, he, whenever something was wrong, actually my, both my parents, my mum and dad, they would say, what's the worst thing that could happen? And what they meant by that was, when a distressing situation occurs in your life and you're trying to unpack it and you're trying to emotionally deal with it, they sort of took me to, well, what's the worst that could happen? And then how would you deal with that? And then whatever the situation, then when you come back to it, it never seems as bad. And it always has worked for me really well. And so I went through that. What's the worst going to happen? Well, they're going to ask me to leave. I'm going to be fired. or I'm. And then you play that movie forward. I play that movie forward. And so then I then think about, well, what am I going to do about it? And so that resilience that I pride myself on, that I think great 
teams and whether it's sporting organizations or businesses, the ones that are strong are the ones that know that they're going to have adversity, deal with it head on, and then come up with new ways to succeed. And so that morning, uh, I woke up and I was full of energy, full of optimism. I was more measured in how I would communicate it. And I guess I'd learnt since then my optimism is a wonderful asset, but don't necessarily over-communicate that optimism because we need belief and predictability in business sometimes. So trying to get that balance, and I've always been better since that time. And then I went to work with my team. We delivered a knockout Q4. We were brilliant in the year. And I guess it set me on my way for the next phase of success that had its future adverse moments, but nothing to that magnitude. I'm super interested on this idea of playing the tape forward for yourself at the lower points. Let's imagine something's wrong with your health or God forbid your child's health and your wife is very, very concerned about you or about your kids. Will you literally play the movie forward of like, okay, well, what happens if this is real? Will you actually- I'll actually voice it. I'll actually talk about it. So, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And anybody who um, has children, you have those moments in life where you're scared. And business is a different form, but in personal life, you're scared for the health and well-being. I can give you a very clear example. My son, when he was born at 37 weeks, his lungs were not mature. And we were in a small town near Melbourne, Australia, in a place called Ballarat. And so they had to fly him in ICU to the children's hospital. It was an emergency situation. My wife had just been through the Caesar, so a C-section, so she couldn't leave. And I remember vividly with her, our son had just been taken away an hour after he'd been born. We didn't know what was going to happen and it was playing, all right, what's the worst that can happen? Now, the worst that could happen was something that is unthinkable, but I had to force myself to be there to deal with it to then be able to navigate what I do next. And we agreed I would fly over there. I would then be with him. We would then find a way to continue to communicate and she would be there as soon as she was able. And so I think when we did that, we did it together and we played out, well, the worst place of the movie. And then you work backwards in terms of the actions that you take. For me, it's always allowed me to deal with the reality of the situation and find that it's never as bad as it seems, but even if it does turn out to be, you've got strategies to deal with it. Yeah. When you were a kid, where was this, Australia? Yeah, a gold mining town like the uh, San Francisco, actually, uh, the biggest gold mining town in Australia, a town called Ballarat. What did you talk about at the dinner table with your folks? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, when I was a kid, my parents were always in the community. So my father, he ran a business for an orphanage for children without parents. My mother was, she was a nurse, but she was on Lifeline, which was a tele-service for mental health. This is 35 years ago, 40 years ago. And people would ring up and just need counseling and support services. So I guess my parents were always talking about community and how to help others. And that was their life. And they continue to do that today. So a lot of it was around what was happening in the community. When it came to me, A lot of it was around supporting what I thought success was for me when I was young. I love sport. Uh, You know, I'm obsessed with basketball. I love all sports. 
But then my parents would always talk about balancing your schooling and your study, you're balancing your health and your fitness studying, you give your things that you do for your friends and your community. So a lot of the conversation at the dinner table were about events of the day and what we were doing in our lives and whether we were in balance. I don't think we ever used the word that much, but if I think about the conversations, it was hey, you're spending so much time on your sport, you you know, how's the study going? And hey, I noticed you haven't seen those friends that you're really close to. What's Johnny doing or what's Dylan doing? So that was the sort of conversation we would have. What sport would you spend too much time on? Basketball. Were you good or Uh, did you think you were good? (laughs) I always say this. I couldn't shoot well enough, jump fast enough, high enough and run fast enough. But look, I was good in that, you know, I was one of the best players in the town and I I I played for the state. So I put a lot of hours into it, Jovin. I can tell you that. I was every day, morning and night, and I just practiced and practiced. So, Did you take a shot at going pro? No, I was never. Look, I got to a level where the level below the National League in Australia and I knew – there was a moment, there was a couple of American imports that were in the Americans. team and they were not good enough to make the national in Australia, let alone the NBA, and they were just better players than I knew that I was going to be. So that reality moment of maybe my career in basketball as a player, but I would say I got injured when I was a, I was about 14 or 15. I couldn't play and so the coach said to me, hey, look, why don't you coach kids? And I'm like, oh, I'm 14, 15 years old. What am I going to be coaching? And so he said, coach the eight-year-olds, the fundamentals of the sport. I've got to tell you, I loved it. I ended up enjoying coaching more than playing in some respects and the parents and the expectations, but the joy that I got of showing these kids the beauty of the game of basketball and how much I loved it and I wanted to pass that on, I never lost that. So basketball... I coached it, I played it, I watch it. I'm a regular at Madison Square Garden watching the Knicks, even though they're not performing too well right now. So then you went to Deakin University, right? Then went to a PwC in management consulting. Yes. Spent two years doing that. Then you went to IBM, ultimately became a partner at IBM. 11 years of that. Then you went to SAP. This is in 2010. Started as a senior vice president, then went to Singapore, became the COO of Singapore, then president of Southeast Asia, right? And then president of all of Asia Pacific. You were initiated into the executive board (laughs) and you run all of customer success, which is, I guess, a fancy way of saying anything customer facing, revenue touching. Yes, sales, consulting services, cloud engagement, customer engagement. So as you say, anything that is customer facing that is accountable for our customers to make sure they get the value out of the investment they make. Your wife, Katrina? Yes. I had the opportunity to speak with her before this. What a sweetheart. She's an amazing woman. I couldn't help but ask her, do you and Scott have the type of relationship where your friends get upset that they can't believe that you have such a good relationship where in the back of their mind, they think, is it always this way? I couldn't get over this feeling. It really warmed my heart. The way that she spoke about your relationship was so special. It was amazing. I just wanted to tell you that. I'm going to have to thank my beautiful wife when I get home (laughs) and see her, but that's humbling. I don't know what she answered I think my wife and I, what we've done, and it's not just the two of us, it's our family, is we really try to embrace who we are as people and embrace the success and the joys and the wonder of each other and of our children and parents. So 
I have this saying that the work version of me of Scott is not the best version of me. And I think she feels the same about herself. And what I mean by that is that doesn't define who I am. It's a part of who I am and I'm really proud of it and I embrace it. But I I embrace being a great husband. I embrace being a great father. I want to be a great friend. I, And that doesn't mean we're perfect, not by any stretch. We have our challenges and things like that. But I guess that means that when people see us, we're full of joy. We're generally happy, outgoing, and her outlook on life is amazing. She changes people's lives and my life every day. Can you unpack that? The work version of you is not the best version of you. Can you tell me more? I guess the way I've always looked at my life is, and again, maybe it's the parents and the way I was brought up is this balance, this concept that there's multiple parts of you. And so- When I was building my career, like a lot of young professionals, I was aggressive and driving and I wanted to grow and do bigger things. And what I realized over a period of time, and parenthood definitely played a role in this, was the things that I do in life define me, but that's not all work-related. So, for example, I was a heavy traveler doing business, but I would always be back you know, overnight on a Friday night, but Saturday morning, I'm coaching basketball with my kids and I'm there from 8am to 3pm. Those moments and the impact that I had, not just on my three children, but the hundreds of kids that I coached, that was a part of my life. That's not my work version, but I was really proud of what I did. And so I was always looking for who I am and am I doing good and am I and I'm enjoying life, even if it's just going for a run with a friend. Like I love to go for a run and keep fit. Being a fit, healthy person, you know, is a part of who I am, but that's not part of work. I guess I've adapted a little bit in more recent years. I think leadership and the expectation in business is there is no such thing as work-life balance. It's just life balance. And I think as human beings, we want to understand and relate to each other. And I speak much more openly than I ever would have about my life because I think if people see that I'm a parent, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, but I'm also someone that has a broader, rich narrative outside of what I do in work, they actually can relate to me more and I can relate to them. I open up that conversation more than I've ever thought was possible. I used to separate it and I don't anymore. Interesting. And you're saying with your team, you will tell more personal stories that give them more of an under the hood look at Scott. Yes. Do you have any examples? I'm super curious. I was explaining a couple of weeks ago, actually, even this trip, you and I were talking about it. My wife suffers from migraines. And so I was explaining to the team that were traveling that wanted to meet her and I was explaining the situation. Now, I could have said, oh, look, she's not too well, but I actually went into a bit of the impact that it has, the impact that a migraine will have on her, the debilitating effect, the fact that I was in regular communication with her and seeing how she was going. It probably opened their eyes up to the care I have for her and the situation and feeling uncomfortable, and I was very open, I was uncomfortable being on the other side of the country. She's in New York, I'm here in the Bay Area, and not being able to help her, they probably got to see a little bit more of who I am as a person that had nothing to do with the business, the what we were working on that day. Yeah, and you think opening up in that way builds a stronger version of a connection that creates some form of implicit trust that makes you potentially more effective in your jobs together. I do. I genuinely believe belief, so belief, the term belief and trust, they're so intertwined. Humans are really smart 
in business, in life, we're really smart, we're really in tune for when it doesn't quite add up and we sometimes can't put our finger on it. But authenticity, you cannot manufacture that. You have to, or you, you, it needs to come naturally. And when you're only showing a part of who you are to your team, you're not showing your true authentic self. That doesn't mean you need to go into what you had for dinner three nights ago and the mundane aspects of your life, but it's opening up to who you really are. And I think what people will do, my experience has been when you're leading, they will more naturally, more willingly follow you because they might not like everything that you say and do. That's okay. That's part of life. But they will believe that what you're trying to achieve is authentic to who you are because they can see the other pieces of the puzzle. Have you always been a similar version of yourself in your home life with Katrina and in your work life? Or how long did it take for you to feel like you can really be a very similar version? I'm not sure how to ask that question. No, I think I know where you're going. I go in and out. And what I mean by that is sometimes you get so hung up on certain parts of your work life, you're accelerating a certain part of your life and you're overemphasizing it. Or it could be the other way around. I know some colleagues are really passionate about fitness, but they'll nearly overemphasize that part of their lives. So sometimes I feel out of sync. All right, I'm overemphasizing. I'm spending too much time on the road. I'm thinking about business all the time and I'm not giving the other aspects of my life the nutrients that it needs. And that's usually time and space to be able to do that. And when I'm out of that sink, Katrina is incredibly good at being able to really gentle way of bringing me back in line. And I do the same for her. So I think when I was younger, I thought the career growth was the most important driver. And I was out of sync with who I was as a person because I care. I pride myself on having a positive impact on others. And so my career was so focused on me, but my life was focused on others, my children, my parents and others. It didn't tally up. When I embraced the fact that, well, why I love to lead is because I love to have a positive impact on others and it became natural to me, that's when I started to see career acceleration. Yeah, I do find it interesting, especially around these parts of the world in Silicon Valley, but I think generally in just the ways in the industries that we work the amount of effort, time, and care that is spent on our work, the way that we wake up, create a checklist, plan, create OKRs, three-year terms, outcomes from those three-year terms, blah, 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 blah. Over and over again, we have such deliberate ways of creating and driving outcomes in our professional life. We don't seem to apply that same level of rigor to our personal life. I actually think it's a shame. I agree. And it's, again, you're out of sync because you're nearly relieved when you get out of that work, that highly structured pressure, what you need to achieve, those OKRs, and then you go into personal life. But actually, when you realize that your progression is about your fulfillment and that is your life, you then put your career plans and your life plans and you make, they actually end up being in sync. When I talked to Katrina, she said, you had just moved to New York City about a year ago. August last year. She's never been to New York City. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She told you that. Okay. Uh, Yeah, she'd been as far as Hawaii and also through San Francisco on the way to Cabo in Mexico. And she, she couldn't have had a better perspective on it. And what I asked her is because I know that you've been moving around for your career for decades now together. 
And I asked her, has there ever been a time where you moved to a country, in this case, it's countries, not cities, right? Where you didn't like it. And she said, actually, yes. I think it was, where were we? In Thailand? In Bangkok. Was that right? Yeah. Can you tell me about like how that went down? And then I want to get to New York. Yeah. Very simply, I was very early in my career. I'm late 20s, nearly 30. I was running um, multiple markets. So it was a great career opportunity. It was a great job for you. I was running Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, Cambodia, Laos, multiple countries, diverse markets thousands of people. I'm early in my career. So from a career point of view, this was a really significant opportunity. In your late 20s, early 30s, there's a thousand plus people under you? Yeah. Holy hell. Okay. (laughs) All right. Continue. Yeah. I was really motivated to make it the opportunity work. And my family had been, they used to, we'd moved around a few times already. And so we embraced that. The kids got into the school. They were still quite young. We got into sport. We loved, we did triathlon. So we tried to embrace what Thailand, and it's a wonderful country. If you've ever had the opportunity, they're incredible people and wonderful culture. But there was no doubt that about a year in, maybe 15 months in, you know, she just came to me one day and she said, look, I've been away from family away from Australia for nearly seven years, I'm done. I said, okay, let's make it work. And so we never thought of it this way, but we look back now and was like, yeah, it's probably a test of our relationship and our marriage, but more importantly, what is important to us as people. And as much as the career was important, it was just a different move on my journey. And I made the most of the move to Australia. I didn't particularly like working back in Australia. So it wasn't a great career move for me, but the family, the balance, the health, the well-being, the total life package, it was worth every step. But I, you didn't I never beat regret yourself it. up for that. Like that didn't get under your skin of, boy, did I just go backwards in my career? Like did I just make a move that hurt my career? You know, I look back on it in a positive light now, Joe, but at that time, I was frustrated. And it was frustrating because I I obviously lost what I thought was a window of opportunity to capitalize this. And the business was running really well. So I had a great track record as well. And it did feel at the time. But that frustration pales into insignificance when the well-being of those that you love and care for, all the other aspects of your life. And I knew, and I guess I had been preaching to people in my team about the world is full of opportunities that are flying by. Okay, so that opportunity, that door was closed as a way forward and I needed to look for new opportunities and earn the right again. And so once I got my mindset, again, back to this, what's the worst case? Okay, now I can deal with it. Now I put myself into a strategy of what I'm going to do to achieve success in a different context. I jumped and embraced on upon that. And that actually led to the opportunity of SAP because what I realized when I went back to Australia was even though I was highly successful, I wasn't enjoying it, the role, the function that I was performing. And it gave me, and then SAP knocked on the door and I embraced it. And we ended up moving back to Singapore, even though we said that we were done expatting, we said, yep, let's go do it again. And we've never looked back. I haven't put any of these dots together until I was just listening to you talk and tell me if I'm making something up that doesn't exist, but it strikes me that you are someone is very loyal, meaning you're loyal to the opportunities in your career. You're loyal to the people in your life and your family, your wife. You're at IBM for 10 years at SAP for what? How many years? 12, 12 years now. And you are here for at least two more years <laughs> uh, in this term, a year and a half. Loyalty is not 
commonly found anymore. I actually don't even think it's described as loyalty. Is that important to you? How do you think about it? When I commit to something, I put my heart and soul, and it was a bit like you described, Ruben, when you said about the three years, you put all of your endeavor, all of your energy, and you commit yourself to that. And I very much embrace that. I embrace when I'm asked to do something or I take on an opportunity. And what ends up happening is when you create that success, that leads to new opportunity and great organizations. And SAP have been wonderful for me because I've run markets, I've run operate, you know, I've been a COO, I've run regions, I've done different business functions. And so whilst it feels like it was a long period of time in 12 years, actually I've done four different roles that were really diverse in what they brought. It tested my skills. So I guess the loyalty part is loyal to doing my absolute best. And then in a broader life context, yeah. I come from a family and an upbringing where you really take joy in others' success. And that probably builds a level of trust, but also loyalty to each other. So I guess that's ingrained in my professional life as well. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of my work and how I think about it as it relates to my life. And my life is generally designed around my work right now. And that's kind of how I want it to be. It's important to me. Some of the feedback that I've been getting recently is, well, Jubin, on your tombstone, do you want it to say that you were a great partner at Kleiner Perkins or executive in this or you manage this big team? And for a long time, I always thought, no, you know, I want it to be about impact or whatever. And I've started to realize over time on my tombstone, I wanted to say he gave a shit in everything that he did across the board. And I really, really tried. And yeah, that also includes my job. I almost felt like I was supposed to be guilty for really giving a shit. And maybe ideally, when I have a family, I'm going to apply that same level of rigor towards that part of my life. I think you've got it. If you don't give a shit, then you're not fulfilled. And what's wrong with having that on the tombstone? The way I've always looked at my life is it's not about no regrets, but I want to enjoy the moments. And the moments are not always positive ones. Some of the best moments in my life has been when I've been most challenged, like that example that I gave around running that new business and nothing worked and the deal didn't happen. But it taught me about who I was. It taught me about how I was going to deal with difficult circumstances. It gave me new skills to deal with adversity. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud of what I've done in work. And I want on the tombstone to absolutely, I gave a shit. I had an impact on others. People knew that when I was in, I was really in. And I think when you do that, whether it's in your personal or professional life, you can't help but get success in whatever you determine success to be. What makes you snap? I'm super curious. What do you have very little patience for? Oh, there's a few things. But the thing that I struggle with the most is when people have got an ingrained view, just unwilling, unwilling, and I get it, and I'll explain why, but unwilling to look at an alternative, look at different points of view, different way of doing And that unwillingness, it isn't just the fact that they're not prepared to step into whatever you're, you're proposing. It has a permeating effect on those around them. And so when you're an energy taker versus an energy giver, the impact that those people, that makes me snap. I can handle a debate. I can handle different points of view, but I expect from my organization, and actually I even do for my customers when we're negotiating is, hey, look, just 
please listen and hear a different perspective rather than this ingrained view. I always describe it as it's like as a child, you learn when you put your hand on the fire, you know, you'll never do it again. Some of our life experiences is because of what we've learned through harsh lessons, but all you're really learning is not to put your hand so close to the fire, but you can put your hand near it and it's nice and warm. So it's a level of perspective. That makes me very upset because I think it limits the opportunity of that person, let alone the business. Makes total sense. I am very curious on your perspective on competition. I'll be very specific. Every day, we endeavor in this office to fund what we hope will topple SAP and be the next great company. We want to build and be a part of that ride every day, right? I love it. It's on the walls. Like That's Genentech. It's in our DNA, no pun intended. Concur is a great example, right? Right, SAP company. We're like active, active investors in companies that are very clearly trying to take that throne away from you. I could give many examples. Anyone from Brex to now Rippling, it's all there. And there's a lot of people that are going into the space. It's become quite crowded. You kind of sit on the other side of this of the fence. How do you think about it? Does it keep you up? It does. So first of all, you've got to thrive on competition. And I guess a childhood in sport and a love of sport is you embrace competition. And I think as human beings, we can all accept when a competitor beats us and they beat us through you know, a better capability or something, you've got to just tip your hat, you applaud, but then you get to work. And so competition drives better performance. So I thrive on the competition. I'm super active in worrying about, well, what is the competitive landscape? So every time I meet a client, I ask open questions. Who else are you talking to? Why are you talking to them? What are they offering? Where are we at? Asking those open-ended questions, which usually people are really willing to share. And what I've realized, so that in the role of SAP, there's a couple of things that I've recognized. The first is I'm leading a business in transformation. So I have got businesses that I call load bearers. Our ERP business, it is incredible. It's high performing. It grows. It's sticky. It is incredible. And it bears the load of a lot of our growth. But then I've got the speedboats. And I manage those speedboat businesses 100% different than what I do the load bearing business because it requires different speed, scale, agility. So the beauty I have is that I've got a business that I'm running large scale transformation, resource intensive, but then I've got sharp, agile businesses that we're trying to incubate. And so I feel the entrepreneurial spirit of those businesses, which we're incubating within a large company, and then trying to get that balance right. Jobin, what I know for sure is that if you're not aware of what the market is doing and what the competitors are doing and how that impacts your customer base, then you're going to quickly lose your ultimate results in your revenue performance. But what you're really going to do is lose the mind share and the market share of the thing that you you care about the most, and that's your customer. Fortunately for SAP, we've got an incredibly loyal customer base. It's one of our assets. So I build upon the strengths of the fact that, well, now that you've got that big sticky ERP business, your willingness to engage with us on a concur conversation, on a network conversation, our sustainability solutions, you know, what we're doing around customer experience and customer data cloud. It's a lot easier to have those conversations when you have a, got a great relationship. So last of all, 
I'm obsessed about the customer experience. I'm obsessed about them getting value in the outcomes and whatever they invest in. Because what I've recognized as a business, and this is true whether you're small, medium, or large, when your customers are delighted with what you deliver, they're more willing to tell others, they're more willing to buy more, your ability to upsell, cross-sell, all of those things become an opportunity for you, but you've got to get the foundation right. Competition keeps you honest. I love it and I embrace it. On the culture piece, when you bring in some of these speedboats into the SAP culture, I imagine they're starkly different. Tough. Which, by the way, is kind of the point, right? How do you manage that? It's got to be difficult. It's got to be difficult because fundamentally, I imagine the load bearers, the people that are selling the ERP solutions are also a very different profile of person than the person selling Concur or Qualtrics, et cetera. It is difficult because, first of all, it's recognizing that the culture and the way of working and the way that they have been, their business has been built, a Qualtrics, a Concur, is very different than what SAP's historical business Rather than trying to make us all the lowest common denominator, I embrace the differences. And I think that's really critical for those who are running larger organizations. Embrace what's different. Take out and extract the goodness and the things that are really great about their SAP and how you can ingrain that. One of the reasons why Concur is so powerful is because when we bought Concur, I think it was about 80 or 90% of the install base of customers were non-SAP. So we had an immediate synergy opportunity for each other of being able to bring that together. Qualtrics was quite similar. But it's not about being the same. And so what you recognize and what I recognize is when I'm leading, you've actually got multiple cultures in your team, geographic, business line, type of business, type of market. It is super difficult to get consistency and bringing together that community of a one organization when you're embracing difference. But then again, as human beings, we're all a bit different. So it's embracing those differences and allowing the freedom for them to succeed. I can tell you those speedboats, those startups, they have a much greater operating freedom, the ability to be able to innovate, ideate, test, try and fail, and then re-go again. Whereas in the load-bearing side, you're really about penetration, scale, structure, and being able to bring the strength because they are the revenue-generating power. So you have different strategies. I actually enjoy the pivot from, hey, the big part of my business, how that's performing, and then quickly move into, we're trying to start up this network business. And it gets your ideation, your thinking going. To be honest, Ruben, I then apply it back to right. our core business. So- when you do it well, it becomes actually powerful for both parts. But if you try to make everything equal, that's when a lot of large organizations, in my view, are not successful. I've touched wood, I've been very successful in the two years I've been in this role, growing and really taking our cloud growth, which was at 13% revenue growth in cloud at the beginning of last year. We're at 26%. We're growing our backlog by even higher than that. In Q3, it was 38% growth. The reason for that was because I let the speedboats and the load bearers have their opportunity to shine and grow, and we wouldn't have got those results without both being in a performing basis. Yep. If you weren't at SAP, what would you be doing? If you weren't working, do you know how to chill? Like, can you <laughs> chill? I'll preface the question with, I do not know how to chill. I don't know either. <laughs> 
I don't. I, you and I, we cut from the same cloth. I really try my best. Like I lie there on a Saturday morning and I'll be like, all right, you want a coffee? And I'm straight. I'm making coffee. You know, we've got the coffee machine at home. I'm active. I'm doing something. So for me to just sit down and so it's forced for me and relaxing. I love sport. So I love to either participate or watch or engage and that mental stimulation. But to chill, I think that's going to be a life, a journey for me to be able to get there. When you pack in so much to your schedules on a given day, especially when you're traveling, I talked to your chief of staff and she was saying how she just got off a conversation with you, arguing with you about how you have way too much in your schedule coming West. Do you have any version of discipline that you feel like is important to keep you grounded amongst the chaos? It sounds like exercise is one of them. Exercise, no doubt. Uncompromising. Uncompromising, getting up, going out, going for a run, going to the gym, whatever. For me, it's about getting out and that clarity, that openness. And that is when I don't think about much. I just clear my mind and just enjoy the exercise. I used to run for speed and triathlons and all those sort of things. Now it's just about my mental well-being as much as it is my physical. That's an unequivocal, you know, always got to keep space for it. I do push myself and I push the boundaries, not so much only in time, but really being sharp on how am I going to maximize the benefit and the impact of this trip? How am I going to be able to meet as many partners, customers, media, analysts, being able to then employees, different stakeholders? And so what I've got better at is I used to fill the diary with a lot of activity, really now what Susan and the team helped me do is make sure it's the most impactful. I enjoy the feeling at the end of the day where you say, well, I did something, I helped others. I'd rather that feeling than feeling like I've got a little bit left in the tank. Doesn't surprise me at all and uh, I relate. Well, look, this has been spectacular and I appreciate you. I really do. I always wrap these things the same. The first is, are you hiring? Is there anything that you're hiring for? Any key roles in your organization that you want to shout out? Yeah, we are hiring. So we are a growing cloud business. We're an incredibly diverse cloud business and we operate in multiple segments and industries, but the leadership in driving what is natural to us, which is obviously the core supply chain, manufacturing, ERP, but also the aspects in where a business that meets the needs of a difficult market. The CFO is actually our best buyer because all of the solutions address both operational efficiency, cost effectiveness, scale. And so we're a business that is continuing to expand. And so if you're interested from my part of the business in really delighting the customer in a leadership or in an individual capacity, delighting customers in bringing value and helping them navigate difficult scenarios, supply chain disruption, how to retain the best talent, how to be able to drive more operational effect and process efficiency in your company, how to be able to automate and use artificial intelligence. We've got the broad range of capability and you know we're a wonderful culture. The One of the beauties of being in a European company is you get to enjoy the delights of a rich culture that is different and it's not better or worse, but it's different. So you get the beauty of being a US, we've got 25,000 employees here in the US, 
but we're also a part of a European family and a global family. And I find that even little things like the choice of wines, the coffee that you drink, the food that you're in, and those life experiences. Life in SAP is beyond just doing business. You'll enjoy the experience of working with your colleagues. I got to ask you, I can't help myself. In this market, a company like SAP, if I'm you, I'm probably looking around thinking, boy, prices are pretty cheap right now. I haven't looked at your market cap relative to what it was six to 12 months ago. I imagine it's down, not up, but I also imagine it's not nearly as far down as some of these other you got it. competitors, right? That might be competing with the Qualtrics of the world. I do wonder if there's strategic assets that you're starting to look around at with the rest of the executive team. I'm sure that you start to scratch your head and think, can we accelerate our growth? I think the word that you used there was is the right one, which is strategic. And in fact, we talked about this with the analysts at the end of our Q3 earnings, Christian and I, where we talked about we are always looking at the assets that are out there in the market. And it is such, it's an amazing market. You mentioned it before. So much entrepreneurial talent bringing ideas of new ways of creating value for business. You can't help but be inspired by that. And whether it's through partnerships, so I'm really focused on partnerships, embedding an open platform, engaging in collaboration. We've done things with companies like Isertis and Ekaterra and a bunch of others. But the idea of being able to partner, lean in as well, was another one that we partnered with. Rather than only on an acquisition path, but on a partnering, it helps the ecosystem of these dynamic businesses work with the foundation of SAP, our 400,000 customers around the world. So mutual win-win. So yes, very much partnerships. And also if it's strategically fit, then we're always looking. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What does it mean to you? I loved the title. You've heard me use the word resilience. When I think of grit, I think of just muscling down, fighting adversity, dealing with uncertainty, finding a way forward. And sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes it's not easy. It's like those basketball games where you see a team just eke out a win when they didn't shoot well, but they hustled the rebounds. They were playing for each other. They did that one extra pass to be able to shoot a score. They were blocking. They were doing extra screens. Things that people don't always notice, but is foundational for success. That for me is grit because when you do it, it actually has a ripple effect on others. I'm proud to be on this podcast and be associated with the term because I like to think that I've got a bit of grit. We're proud to have you. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you coming from New York and spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jubin. Great to be here. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 